I'm your host, Satya Mishra, and today my guest is Dr. Gert Kauwenbergs. Dr. Kauwenbergs is a professor at UCSD. He works on brain-machine interfaces and neuromorphic circuits, both of which are fascinating fields. Dr. Kauwenbergs sat down with us at ISSCC 2018 to discuss his life and research. He shares some key insights into low-power circuits and tips for aspiring researchers and entrepreneurs. Dr. Kauwenbergs, welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. And thank you for being here. Thank you, my pleasure. I always like to start with a little bit of background about yourself. So you grew up in Brussels. Um... Yes, and uh, for some reason, um, Belgium has become a bit of a hotbed in, in um, circuits and systems and, and solid-state circuits. Um, um, and when I grew up there, I had no idea about any of, I guess, uh, IMEC or IMEC, as it's called here in the United States. But I still remember the day in, 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 um, in, in college when I was in uh, Brussels that uh, we had uh, representatives from uh, IMEC uh, who came to tell us about the new great things happening uh, in, in, uh, in uh, um, information technology and in manufacturing of semiconductors, and, and it seemed uh, very exciting. At that time, we had no idea that, that this would actually become because what it is today. Um, but definitely we had great opportunities for, for guess, learning guess, uh, guess, uh, circuits in those early days. Yeah. So you, were you always interested in electronic circuits back, going back even to high school? Well, my undergraduate degree was in applied physics and okay. it's very broadly tuned. Electronics is part of that, also optics and, and, and other different modalities. And I always had a fascination with, with uh, putting things together and... and um, trying to create. Um, I also did music. I, was, uh, I played the piano. And, um, and so part of that also helped to cultivate because of the spirit for, for, for innovation or creativity. So that was helpful in my later career. But uh, so definitely I had a, a feel for, for putting things together and creating things. So tell us a little bit about uh, undergraduate life in uh, Brussels in 88. Well, I wasn't very active in, in, in student life. I, I did learn, I guess, uh, a lot from my professors um, and also from my peers, from my, my, the students. And I, I do remember this one of my classmates who uh, actually inspired me to, uh, to start looking at electronics. He was one of those really great uh, wizards who would put together, basically, in those days, uh, he had Radio Shack and those like, places where he can buy electronics and, and, and put things together. He, he would put together his uh, home alarm system, troll systems, and, and I was very fascinated by it, and, and I learned from him as well. So that's, that's, um, that's, that was one, one thing I, I definitely remember that also has, has had an impact on me. Um, most of it was, was uneventful. Okay. Um, so this friend of yours, is he still in electronics? Uh, yes, his name is uh, Martin Kirk. Uh, he's also, uh, he came to ICCC a few times as well. Uh, he, had, he has a few startups that, that made it very large companies doing uh, mostly um, CMOS for, for uh, imaging and, and for communication. So you'd go out and get stuff and make these home alarm systems in your dorm room or something? Well, he was, he was amazing. He was putting all kind of different things together uh, okay. as a hobbyist, you know. Fortunately, that, that, that spirit of, of going to the store and getting components and putting things together is no longer what it was at, at that time. Right. You can yeah. buy things online um, and, and, and put things together, but uh, today uh, the, um, the home feel of, of do, doing things, right, um, 
it's a bit gone. I mean, yeah, you can buy a, a system and program it for doing something, but it's different from taking a breadboard, putting components on it, wire wrap it together, and, and, and get something coming out of it. Yeah. So you, you think you miss that portion of making electronics work these days? Of course, on, on the bright side, now with the added complexity of, of, of today's systems, you can do a lot more. And yes, if you're great at programming, yeah, you, you can do wonders as well. But I think it's important for students and everyone to, to get exposure also to the physical feel for, for what it is to, to build and, and design circuits and actually really build them from, from the ground up. Uh, it is sometimes um, too tempting to sit in front of your terminal in front of your computer screen and, and, and design your circuits and and never really get close to, to the to the silicon or to, or to the or to the electronics that's very true I really appreciated when I was uh, working at national being able to make mm -hmm. an op amp and go into the lab and measure right. everything yeah that was always fun so after your undergrad you went to do PhD at Caltech which is one of the top universities in the you did your PhD with uh, Amon Yarev. How was that experience? Yes, this was it was great because I um, I was lucky because um, you, you never really know um, as an undergraduate where you where you end up. Uh, so apply to to many places. Uh, so Caltech was uh, one of them, and and to to some extent you can uh, say that because a career is made by uh, being at the right time in the right place. I was just um, just lucky to. Um, uh, to join because uh, I'm on your Reeves group because uh, initially working on uh, quantum electronics because the uh, systems I uh, guess for optical communication and, but also at other time because uh, in the late 80s it, it happened to be the, the birth time and the birth place of uh, neuromorphic engineering right which is now uh, uh, emerging as, as, as a um, uh, important I guess, field in uh, with machine learning uh, com basically and computational intelligence here at that time, uh, the field started very example, um, very um, uh, in simple terms, and it was very exciting because uh, Sukarver uh, Meet, because uh, we started the field of neuromorphic engineering, had a, a, a very uh, bold vision um, and because uh, it really embraced then neurobiology, spatial neurobiology, with also the uh, the physics of computation, and this was a very revolutionary view. Today may seem now obvious after after the fact, but the thought of combining this two was was really um, because um, uh, a very great insight, and he had uh, great people around him because the, most of the uh, just for your audiences might not know Carver Mead. Just wondering if you could maybe introduce Carver Mead a little. Yes, bit. So, so Carver uh, was well, so Carver Mead is is well known for a few things. He also started in a way because um, he's in fact the person who coined the term Moore's law. And, and uh, he was a very good friend of, of uh, Gordon Moore. So the two had great interactions when, when uh, Carver was at Caltech. So, so both had great things in common. And the vision of, of VLSI systems is, is, is one of them. Uh, so Carver is then well known for, uh, for his uh, initial book on, on uh, VLSI systems. Right? Um, and this was in the days before it really became very fashionable. Um, so that's one great contribution that, that Carver made in, in the systems view and, and how it scales, basically scaling of, of um, semiconductor uh, technology and, uh, at the systems level, which is really crucial for, for going up because in, at scale. And then later, uh, he, um, what is, he's perhaps less known for, he started the field of neuromorphic engineering. 
He had a few other contributions. He also had, uh, he's, he's known for, for his work, or perhaps less known for his work on quantum electron dynamics, but uh, he, has, he's, he has very, uh, a very broad uh, set of, of talents that, that he has, has, has worked on. So neuromorphic engineering was this new field. Um, and so we, we were uh, exploring drastically new things like uh, silicon retina, silicon cochlea, so right? basically models of how uh, the visual system or the auditory system works right? using integrated circuits and, and really have them uh, transistors implementing these native functions at, at the physical level of, of say, ion channels or, or um, conductances, uh, capacitances, really modeling on the physics of, of, of the devices, uh, of, of uh, the physics of, of computation as it, as it occurs in, in biology. An ion channel is, is um, the means of transport in neurobiology. Uh, so even though uh, neurons and uh, synapses are very different from integrated circuits, there are some commonalities. Right? So we have cells, these neuron cells, right? and, and, and uh, they have a membrane around them. And those neurons get excited. They, they fire action potentials uh, right? when you get an influx of sodium in, in, into them. And so the way this transport occurs is by those ions uh, to, to making it across the membrane through those ion channels. And those ion channels are this great machinery, those, those uh, uh, proteins that, that facilitate this transport based on different factors, voltage, uh, temperature, uh, some chemical factors. Uh, they can be great sensors, but they can also be great uh, electronic devices uh, in which the transport is mediated by, by voltage, and, um, whether it's presynaptic or postsynaptic or, or, or just the voltage itself. So ion channels are the equivalent of MOS uh, metal oxide semiconductor channels that you have in, in, in silicon. And what is actually more amazing, and Carver realized this very beautifully, if you look at the physics of how ions make it across these ion channels, and compared to how electrons and holes make it across the channel of a transistor, it's not all that different. You have the same Boltzmann physics that is at play here, right? And, and so um, uh, you can look at the conductance of this channel or population of channels as a function of voltage. You get the same exponential uh, dependence of, of these conductance or currents with, with voltage that you have in a subthreshold regime of the MOS transistor in, in those, in those uh, sodium and potassium because uh, the channels that you have in, in, in biology. So that was, that's very fascinating. And, and this has been one of the realizations of, of Carver and uh, the many others in, in, in which there are those isomorphisms, those, those analogs between the physics of computation in biology and the physics of computation in silicon that you can really exploit of making them more efficient machines, because better machines. And this, this is just a starting point because motivating this uh, in the late 80s, um, uh, at that time, micropower uh, electronics was not all that popular. Uh, this was in the days that, right, so when it was all about hot chips, not about cool chips, right? <laughs> and and uh, basically the next uh, microprocessor pushing more gigahertz, right, out of other device, right, and operating at 50 watts, and the more the better, I guess, uh, at that time. Uh, and you had all this big power, thin kind of cool, uh, cooling systems to, to make it work. But so Carver and a few others, uh, also Eric Vitos, because at that time in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, we're realizing that you can use the transistors also in a very different mode of operation. So rather than this the switch or this above threshold device that can really guess, uh, operate with this, this quadratic relationship okay, between the voltage and current, uh, there is also this, this mode, this in weak inversion or deep uh, uh, sub-threshold 
where you get this beautiful high dynamic range of current versus voltage, right, from femtoamps all the way to nanoamps, uh, with this 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 uh, several orders of magnitude uh, scale that you can uh, range that you have uh, with this exponential dependence, right. So we started building circuits that take advantage of that and, and were highly efficient, right? So there's, uh, I mean, power by itself doesn't mean anything. So energy consumption by itself, uh, power consumption by itself doesn't mean anything. What matters is how much energy do you consume for a given amount of computation? And then this subthreshold uh, uh, regime of operation of the MOS transistor just happens to be a great uh, regime for getting great conduct, uh, transconductance per unit current that you need for high gain and, and for, for high efficiency, for, right? And, and, and there are other great advantages in which you can also ensure uh, scalable operation. You can tune your circuit just by cranking up the current by factor 10. Your bandwidth goes up by factor 10. Everything scales naturally. All your uh, cutoff frequencies or all, all your natural frequencies scale by the same factor. Right? So you can make your filter just easily tuned by, by uh, tuning this, this one knob of current. Now, of course, this is now well known, right? But so, uh, and, and, and bipolars have been using that for a long time. But now the concept of using MOS transistors for doing analog in the subthreshold regime was new then. Because, uh, so and, did you get yeah. any pushback for when you were doing this research, or was it easy to find? Well, a pushback, yes, it was, it was very non-conventional. And, and, uh, and uh, yes, the textbook all were, uh, had pages and pages of above-threshold equations, and then just like one page here and there saying, oh, by the way, there's also this one little regime of leakage, right, it's a threshold. Uh, and now, of course, it, it's, it's well known that this is a very important domain, and you actually do want to operate there, right? And so later, I guess also, I guess when I was at Johns Hopkins, um, um, I started uh, also working on biomedical integrated circuits, right? And, and then this subthreshold regime be became also very important because you can optimize the operation of this transistor for low noise purposes, right? So some transistor had to be above threshold, others had to be below threshold, and, and they kind of tailored it that way to, to, to get the best of both worlds, right? Get high, high efficiency and also get very low, low noise uh, performance, right? But so, so this, this field of normal engineering was really then, then uh, in, in part inspired by this physical computation with neurobiology, but then also inspired by this, this high efficiency you can get from the subthreshold operation of, of the transistor. Yeah, I, I think for our listeners' benefit, we should probably explain a little bit what a threshold on a MOSFET is. Yeah, so, yeah. right. Um, so an MOS uh, field effect transistor, a MOSFET, has this great device that, 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 that has this, um, right, so you have the current flowing through the channel as a function of the voltage you apply in the gate, right? Uh, there's no current going into the gate, of order, so that it's, it's just a really uh, it's a control element that allows you to, to control the conductance of the channel, right? And so traditionally, this has been used as a switch in digital, and has been used also as an analog element, but as an analog uh, element, as a conductance, it has been mostly operated in this ab above threshold regime. And what we mean by above versus below threshold refers to where the channel is really on, right? So as the, as the gate voltage rises for an, for an NMOS transistor, right, a channel gets, an inversion channel gets created, so you get, get some uh, electrons that, that accumulate underneath uh, uh, the gate uh, in, in the channel. The, that, and, and so, and the more, the higher the gate voltage, the more channel you have, right? And, and so, and, and that's a drift mechanism, basically, and, and this allows you to control conductance in an almost linear fashion. Now, but there's another domain, before this channel is created in the subthreshold regime, right, when, um, when you still have your native um, channel properties in, in the um, accumulation regime, you also have a, still a minority of, of present. And, and so this is really 
because in, in subthreshold, right, this minority of, of inversion carriers uh, has an exponential dependence. It really is, so you have to get them over this energy barrier. And going over energy bar barrier means you're dealing with Boltzmann physics. And Boltzmann physics basically means you have this exponential dependence between current or, or conductance and, 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 and voltage. And it's, great, and it's a great regime to operate in, because uh, from, from several perspectives. Yeah, so I'm trying to make an analogy see if it uh, makes sense. If we make it like a, an analogy to a tap, for example. Yes, Carver actually has a beautiful analogy of that. And, and, he, and he explained that in his book on analogical design neural systems, right? So let's say you have a dam. And of course, you can control, say, the flow of water. Yeah by just lowering the dam or, or the gate of the, the dam where the water can just flow over, right? And, and the flow, right? And sure enough, if you lower the, 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 right, the, this, 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 uh, this piston so you can get more water that flows out, right? And there's definitely flow of water. But now uh, you can still get flow of, I guess, water molecules, right? By, and, and basically modulating now, I guess, the, the, the height of, of a barrier that goes above the level of the water. And that's basically, right, because there's this vapor, there's vapor, water vapor, right? And so then, and, and you can still have this vapor going across, and as, as, you, as you move this, this barrier up and down, right, you know, you can notice that you have an exponential dependence, say, of how much vapor makes it across this barrier, right? And, and so that, that would be the analogy here. Right? Yeah, that's um, that's yeah. a very good analogy. Yeah. Okay. And so even though it's very little, very little yeah. uh, water, if, if you don't want to waste that much water, that, 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 you can still do computation with it, why not? I guess California yeah. could use some of that technology. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> so now you have the sub-threshold regime that you're designing your yeah. biomedical circuits. At. Yes, I mean, just, it's just like one, one of the means of, uh, the means of operation, right? right. Uh, now, doing mixed sig signal design, we clearly, of course, we still use transistors as great switches, right? right? And we want to make sure to turn them on and off well, and CMOS is great for that. Then we have the subthreshold regime for making great uh, front ends and amplifiers. And then whenever we need to have a current mirror, we want to go above threshold because we want to get, I guess, a, I guess low noise for, for current uh, in the current domain. Right? So, so you can do different balances here and there. But uh, yeah, so subthreshold is, is definitely still also important uh, there as well. Um, yes. That's good. I think you mentioned Johns Hopkins. So was that your first job? Uh, yes. So after after I graduated from from uh, Caltech, um, doing neuromorphic engineering, I was very excited to go to Johns Hopkins. Uh, there I met because um, I worked with um, Andreas Andreo, who's still there, and others. Um, I also got uh, Raffetin Cummings um, to join uh, Johns Hopkins. He was at the time at uh, Southern Illinois University, and in fact, uh, I was very happy. Was able able to get him over there. This was one of the greatest people I brought to Hopkins. Uh, he, he then became chair of the department of, of, of so engineering. So not you get a job there, you started <laughs> recruiting for them yes, right away. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was a great environment we had. Uh, so with uh, Andreas and, and Raf, we were, uh, so we were a, a little power, powerhouse in, in, in normal engineering uh, locally there at Johns Hopkins. Uh, but also, naturally, being there, uh, we had a great presence of, of the medical school there and, and, and people in the biomedical engineering department. Um, and so naturally, right, we also got involved with um, doing biomedical design and using circuits for, for making that connection. And, and this was perfect because uh, neuromorphic engineering was, was um, making us design circuits that emulate biology. And then we have this basically circuits as computation elements, right? Now, 
the connection now with uh, biomedical engineering let us use also silicon subthreshold and others I guess low micropower silicon as a means for interfacing very efficiently with the nervous system or with the body in general right and building devices that can probe as well as monitor uh, or, um, or or modulate uh, the function of the body right in neural prosthesis or because uh, implants for doing because uh, uh, wireless systems for for monitoring because uh, recording uh, neural potentials uh, and also stimulating uh, systems yeah so somewhere in there i guess you your wife too was that in Caltech or? Oh yes, I met uh, yes I, I met my wife at Caltech. So we were both at, at Cake House at that, at that time. No longer no longer exist. Uh, she was a, um, a social scientist, and I, I didn't know at that time there was such a thing as social science at Caltech. It, it seemed, seemed it was all engineering and science, but uh, I don't think many people know that indeed, today but, uh, either. But uh, they actually have a great uh, social science uh, program because. Uh, of course, very quantitative, and, and, and my wife was also quantitative in, in analysis of that. Yeah. Uh, so we met there, and then uh, so we got married in uh, '95. Uh, so it's uh, many years ago now. So I was at Johns Hopkins; she was at George Washington University for several years. Uh, but eventually, we managed to come to uh, UC San Diego, where we both had a job together. I'm trying to remember where George Washington University is. Uh, George Washington is is in DC. Uh, it's in DC, so it's not a few too far. White so House, that, yes, yeah. that worked out really well. It was, yeah, the commute was not great, but uh, and that's uh, also one of the reasons why we moved to uh, UC San Diego. So, so she teaches at uh, UC San Diego as well. Uh, she did, yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. you've been at UC San Diego since. So I've so I've been at, at UC San Diego since uh, two thousand and five. Okay. So that's uh, now more than ten, ten years. Yeah. More, more, yeah. It's coming up on 13 years here. Right, right. <laughs> so San Diego is, of course, very beautiful. Yes, and, and it was a great opportunity. So my wife and I uh, just very much treasured this, this opportunity to, to connect. Um, uh, it's a great school. And also we're back on the, on the West Coast where we met. So UC San Diego has uh, several things to offer. What, what, what was for, for me was the, um, the convergence of silicon technology, Qualcomm uh, being there but also biotechnology. And, and so San Diego is also a hotbed for, for emerging um, biotechnology companies. There's also Illumina and other right, uh, companies. And also has a great presence in, in neuroengineering and, and, and neuroscience. Uh, so you see San Diego together with SOC, Scripps and other places are the forefront also of neuroscience. So when I joined uh, UC San Diego, I initially went to a, a neurobiology department. Okay. And this may seem a bit unusual, and I was told, yes, this was the only and first and only uh, time that a, uh, an electrical engineer, uh, by training, would in a faculty position in a neurobiology department. But uh, UC San Diego is one of those places which is very open-minded and very for forward-looking. And my colleagues uh, uh, not only are, are in biology, uh, not only are, are, are the forefront of the field, but they also have this, this knack for for seeing where things are going. And I realized already 12 years ago that uh, neurobiology will not make progress all by itself, but needs to have an infusion of other domains. And they reached out to engineering and physics and other disciplines for, for infusing technology because into neuroscience for right, um, uh, making greater progress in, in, in the advancing in neuroscience. And in a way, you can say that the, the Brain Initiative started 
because they're at UC San Diego. Uh, people like Nick Spitzer, uh, Tarasinovsky, were my colleagues there in the department, and, and they, they led basically the, what became the, the Brain Initiative by going to, to um, the White House at, at that time with Barack Obama as his president. And he listened, and, and, it, and it worked, and, and it made a big impact. So uh, this Brain Initiative has been very instrumental at making great advances in, in, in neuroscience. Um, and not only making progress in that field, but also drawing others into it, including circuit engineers, including many people in the, uh, in the um, so let's say, circuit society and, and the biomedical circuit systems uh, society, right, who, who were drawn by, by this, this need for technology and advancing what is argu arguably the last frontier in, in, in science is, is basically figuring out how do our bodies work, how, how does the brain work. And, and so this, this new, um, these new advances are, are now coming to the, to the forefront, and you notice that, for instance, at ICCC, there are several sessions now on neomorphic engineering, on biomedical circuits and systems. It didn't used to be that way 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, to some extent, um, the, the, the added awareness of, of the brain initiative has, has also led, led, led to that. You've been at UCSD since 2005, and in that time you have started uh, Cognonics? Uh, yes. Now, founding up that story. Right. So the the how that came about is is as follows. So, uh, when I was still at Johns Hopkins, okay, I had this um, very um, talented uh, sophomore in my graduate class that was teaching on on circuits. Uh, I taught this course. Uh, it's called mixed signal VLSI systems. Right? And this sophomore, his name is Yu uh, Mike Chi. Uh, he aced the class. I, I didn't know at that time he was a sophomore, but he was really doing great, I guess, um, both in the project and in, in assignments. And in fact, he was our cadence administrator, too, because uh, he knew uh, he very well knew how to uh, get around uh, guess, uh, doing things and, 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 uh, and chip design. And I didn't hear too much other, uh, from him at that time, but then when I joined uh, UC San Diego, he, he contacted me. And, uh, he wanted to go to grad school. and. and um, Sure enough, I was more than excited to, to get him over here. His grades were not all that great, but very often I noticed that, that there is an inverse correlation between grades that people get and creativity in, in, in doing things. So, so Mike is one of those, those people that is really um, uh, perhaps not as academically kind of forthcoming, but, but he knows how to make things happen. And I realized that too. So also he came uh, to UC San Diego as a grad student with... Um, his first paper, he already got a paper published in the in the in the red attack in, in the um, in the in the Journal of Solid Circuits when he started his graduate uh, career. Um, and sure enough, he, he did fantastic. Is um, building uh, next generation of image sensors. And one of the uh, other things he was doing is is he started uh, working on on those um, uh, non-contact sensors for measuring brain and body activity, because electrical uh, and, uh, activity in, in the body. So ECG, electrocardiogram, EEG, elect electroencephalogram, EMG, I guess electromyogram, etc. Right, so we were working on those, um, those non-contact sensors that operate over, over the hair, over, uh, over, the ch over clothing, and, and pick up the signals, right, uh, with a quality that is approaching that of gel-based uh, electrodes. You need a gel on the skin to make contact, good contact with the sensor. Yes. And, so there's so a downside the, um, to it? Right. So conventional EEG or ECG systems require those gel-based electrodes to get a good ohmic contact 
from the body which is ionic to electronics which is all about electrons. Right? So electrodes need to have good contact and, and uh, since the skin may be dry, right, you need to have some, some gel to, to, um, to make this, this better contact. Now it's only more recent that dry contact electrodes and non-contact electrodes have really taken off by the realization that you can still optimize by doing proper signal processing uh, or by proper design of circuits for boosting your input impedance of your amplifier. You can still deal with this very high impedance that you have of the contact of an electrode, dry contact and even non-contact, which is an infinite impedance other than capacitance, use of a capacitance connection, and that's perhaps a 10 picofarad or so. Like a, so it's, it's very high in, in impedance, right? And yet with a 10 picofarad capacitance, coupling capacitance, you can still get the original signal if you design your amplifier right. Uh, so that's the work that, that we did with Mike. And uh, in fact, before graduation, he also won one of those entrepreneurship uh, challenge uh, uh, competitions. Um, and that started basically uh, Cognonics as a, as a company. So Mike uh, started as CTO. Uh, we had also someone else joining as a CEO. And this was in 2011. It started very small, um, basically trying to get by with uh, just a funds here and there. In fact, with a few grants, because also from uh, DOD, uh, we were able to grow, I guess, uh, the company uh, and start building some first products, which uh, then we're, we're selling. And so today, Coconix is doing quite well in, in, in as, as a, um, a leader in dry contact uh, EEG uh, market for mostly resource applications, but also now going towards uh, gaming applications as well as medical uh, applications as well. So given your experience starting this kind of a company, what advice would you have for a budding young entrepreneur? So when I started in academics, um, so initially I was pushing my graduates to go to academic jobs, and several did very well. So Francis Roman Janov, uh, University of Toronto, is now a, a full professor there. Shantano Chakrabarty, also at, uh, so he's at, uh, now at, um, uh, Washington University, St. Yeah, Louis. I've met him. I yeah. actually live in St. Louis. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, yes, so we had several of those, those um, enthusiastic uh, I guess, uh, graduates from our lab who really um, I guess, uh, moved forward because in academics. Uh, but then with Mike, Mike Chi, I realized that there are different talents and some people have just the talent to, to make things happen. Even though I think Mike would make a great professor, I saw in him also the, the, the great entrepreneur, and, and I'm glad he actually moved uh, in that direction and he did uh, very well. And this is something that you feel and you know, right? Nobody should tell you what you should do, right? If, if, if you have a passion for something and you like to put together devices or, or, or systems and, and, and you have a passion for making it uh, work in the real world, then you should definitely consider a career in, in, in which perhaps you can go to a company and, and, and help others build. Uh, but you may have a vision to do it yourself and, and start something. And you, sh you should definitely just plunge into it. Do it. It's not a, um, an easy route and many companies fail. But in my experience, I think the, the greatest failure or, or the greatest failure is to have unrealistic expectations by investment because venture capital. And once you have this realistic expectation, then, then, then things go downhill. In fact, we're able to get Cognitics growing without any venture capital. And I think that's also why it will have prevailed and, and, and will have, I guess, move forward. But this is just a personal opinion. So if you had a fairly long career, what do you think has been a highlight of your career? 
So the highlight, I think, is seeing students who join the lab flourish, do well in, in their work. They come in, they, uh, sometimes the student comes in and, and, and after observing what they do after a year or say, saying, oh, this is, this is not going anywhere. Or this, right? But then suddenly there is this spark of innovation and, 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 and they go on a track and, and, and do, they do really well. And, and so everyone that then graduates, I've, I've, I've been very proud seeing them really just doing well in whichever endeavor that, that they're, they're pursuing forward. So that gives great satisfaction because doing something myself is great, but, but also helping others derive from that passion because some benefits that, that that's always great to see. And I mentioned a few examples of people that, that I'm yeah. very proud of. Yeah, it's, it's been an illustrious list. What advice would you have for a student who's looking to get into a graduate program, perhaps under you, perhaps under one of yours? Yes. Now, so you, you don't really know yeah. at that time what your career will be in, in, in the future, right? Right. So be open-ended. Okay. And uh, you, by that time, because when you're in your uh, junior or senior year, uh, senior year in, in college, you already know what you're good at. Right? Uh, whether it's more experimental, more theoretical, more systems, more circuits, perhaps more biological, or uh, the, the different things you can do. And so that definitely should guide your choice and, and what direction you're going to. But other than that, I would not make it too specific and just make sure that you keep all your options open. Uh, so don't go for the hot places where everyone is going just because that's where everyone's going, right? Today it may be deep learning, computer science, right? But keep in mind, whatever is less hot today may become hot in the future, right? So the example, because in my, my case, neuromorphic was completely uncool <laughs> at that time. And because and, uh, when we started, and we had very often, because uh, people tell us, why are you doing this? You're, right? Uh, uh, shouldn't you just simply doing your next uh, generation microprocessors or uh, right, and, and uh, anything that's done with this neuromorphic uh, chips can be done with this this next uh, generation microprocessor at the time. It may have been true at the time, but we knew well enough that this was exciting, and this will pan out some some day later. Now it does. Now everyone is now jumping on the bandwagon. Perhaps this may not be the time to join neuromorphic engineering. I don't know, but uh, uh, there are other new things that are that are now on the horizon. So be be very flexible and and, and just uh, look out for what is not just what is cool today, but also what, what you care about and what you believe in. Speaking of upcoming things, what are you working on these days? So we're, we're continuing working um, at this interface between silicon and, and neuroscience or, or neuroengineering or neuroX. Right? So still we're uh, moving forward in, in neuromorphic designs. Um, now at a different scale, in the old days, those were single chips doing one part of neuromorphic engineering, right? We were initially we were doing, say, the first uh, chip that, that learned on, on chip learning was something that we started doing in, in the in the late 80s, uh, including the, the very first neuromor neuromorphic memory store type of devices in, in, the, in the early 90s. So today it's it's more of large scale reconfigurable systems using event based representations. What I mean by event-based representations, um, those are abstractions of what spikes are or action potentials are in, in the nervous system, right? Our brain communicates 
from one end to the other end with action potentials, with spikes, right? And those are asynchronous digital events. Those are basically um, transmissions of action potentials or, or, or this uh, discrete level but uh, continuous time events, right? And coding of, encoding of, of um, information in the brain is arguably also then this is event-driven in, in this asynchronous representation, right? So spike time is very important there. So uh, over the last 10 years or so, right, we have worked on spike-based neural computing, right, basically integrated fire neural networks, right, that uh, are capable of doing the same kind of computation what more traditional neural networks, such as what is now called deep neural networks, are doing. It was called artificial neural networks, now it's called deep learning. It's really the same thing. There's no, no difference, really. So the spike-based uh, systems right, um, can do the same type of computation, but they're more flexible in the sense that, that uh, uh, you can configure modules right, where you have this, this event-driven communication in such a fashion that when nothing happens, you're, you have basically an idle case communication node. Only when something happens, right, you get these this events that are being transmitted. And so the events themselves carry information. Right? Basically, you have, you have addresses that, that tell you where you have to go to, but then the timing of your event is basically is when something happens. Uh, and this gives rise to more efficient representations of, of how you can communicate, but also compute than, than uh, in um, basically modern nervous system. So we're continuing in that direction. Uh, also then extending our previous work on on-chip learning with now learning with spikes and then in these efficient representations in a reconfigurable uh, hierarchical uh, manner, right, in which we have a hierarchy of, of nodes, computational nodes, where communication can reach far distances through this hierarchical communication network, a bit similar to how the internet works, right? You have local levels of connectivity in, that are highly dense, and then you have sparse connectivity the farther you go in, in your network, right? And this gives rise to very efficient networks for, for, uh, for neural computing. After all, the brain is, is a, a small world network, and successful neural networks are structured in this hierarchical fashion. So hierarchical communication is extremely important, but then also local, local learning is, is, is important as well. So we, we uh, then have this on-chip online learning that we embed in those networks, where then each node does its own learning based on local information, based on, right? So communication is used for high distance, for, for long distance because, um, uh, connectivity, and then local computation is done is implementing local learning as a, an, an adaptation. So between all this work, do you ever get time for fun? Sure, yes. Uh, I like to spend time, of course, my my family. Right? So my wife and I have a 13-year-old son, and we have a, an 18-year-old daughter. Our daughter's now in college. In fact, she goes to uh, UC San Diego, where she, she's also a proud uh, Triton. Our son is now in, in um, going to high school. Because he's, he's, he's now in, um, and uh, just the other day, just yesterday, we went uh, to um, the Science Olympiad, and we had fun, I guess, flying airplanes. So my son built one of those airplanes and was flying the airplane at the Olympiad. That sounds fun. So um, this is like a remote control plane? No, this was one of the, um, uh, it's called ride stuff, right? So basically, um, you have the students built uh, this. Uh, airplanes out of uh, wood and, and, and some simple materials with elastic uh, powered uh, propeller. 
and uh, just then, then let it go off and then see how long it takes to fly in circles until it, it, uh, it goes up and it goes eventually it goes to the ground. And the longer the better, I guess. Uh, so see if it can fly a few minutes. Thank you, Gert, for being on our show. Thank you. Uh, and wish you, all the, wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Did you like this podcast? Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? Please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member. Thank you.